Yeah, this is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and we take an insider's look into the training and racing of some of America's best marathoners as they prepare for the Olympic Trials on February 29th. In today's episode was a live broadcast from the Houston Marathon. We did this at 10 a.m. on Saturday before the Sunday race, and this is with Jared Ward. I couldn't wait to talk to Jared, not only because he had what was going to be a wonderful race on Sunday. He crushed it, not surprisingly, because literally it seems like every single man and woman in the elite field did so darn well in this half marathon. It was just an epic, epic day for both the men and the women. It's been well covered on so many fronts. Take a look if you haven't done so. It's similar to, uh, especially on the men's side, what happened in Chicago. So in the Chicago Marathon, I think it was like 10 men ran under 212, and it was an absolutely historic day. In Houston, it was pretty much the same thing with so many men running under 62, and it was just an awesome experience. But this conversation was the day before, and we talked with Jared not only about things that he's going through with his training and racing, but also how to prepare for a goal race physically, mentally, and emotionally. We're running this on the uh, Road Olympic Trials feed. Because, well, frankly, Jared's doing just that right now. He's preparing for two goal races. He hopes. He's hoping He's hoping that not only the Olympic trials is a goal race of his, but the Olympics as well. And he has done this before in the past. So who better than to talk to Jared Ward about this subject? So here's my conversation with Jared at the Houston Marathon. Hello, everybody, and thank you for coming out today. And more importantly, good luck to everybody this weekend. These special races that have so many individuals coming out to run the half, the full. We had the 5K today. It really is an electric atmosphere. So first of all, thank you for coming out, and good luck this weekend to everybody who's here. And with that in mind, we got Jared Ward, um, a man who, for most of you, does not need an introduction, um, but I'll give a small one. Anyway, so Jared's one of the best runners in America, has been for a very long time. And in addition, he's preparing for the Olympic trials in the marathon on February 29th. And coming here to Houston is part of that preparation. And today, we're going to talk about preparing for a goal race. What that entails, not only for elite runners like Jared himself, but for all the rest of us as well, because we all have goals no matter whether that's trying to you know, get a Boston qualifying time or any kind of time or be top three in a race, we all take this seriously to the point where we really want to become the best runners we can be, and that's a universal thing for all runners of all levels. So I'm excited to talk to Jared about that specifically. But before we do, Jared, first of all, how are you feeling and how are things progressing over the past month or two since your fall racing season? Well, I feel good, and uh, it's good to be in Houston. I love this race. In fact, halves are my favorite distance to race, um, and I, you know, and I run marathons most of the time, and I'm better at marathons. But I, but I love halves, and so I'm excited to be here and run a half. Training's been good. Um, you know, as I've uh, as I've gotten older, I feel more of an emphasis on just being consistent and being healthy. And I've had really healthy, really consistent training. And, um, 
and I trust the results that'll translate when I've been consistent. Now, obviously, in a Olympic year like we have this year, the goal races kind of speak for themselves, right? You have the Olympic trials, whether that's in the marathon or at the shorter distances, and then ultimately the Olympics as well. But in a non-Olympic year, how does it work for you trying to pick out what goal races that you have in mind? And with that, and with that said, the interplay of, okay, these are my goals, these are things that I would love to accomplish, versus kind of a dispirited approach of, okay, this is where I am and this is where my current trajectory of fitness is taking me. Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, I just run what my agent tells me to. No, no, that's, but that's part of it. Um, that's part of it. But, but I think, you know, there's the, the, one of the blessings of being a runner and a marathon runner is there are so many good races. And, um, and so to have the opportunity to sit down with my agent and with my coach and think about the things that I'm excited for and maybe, maybe even, you know, my, my wife or my kids are in my ear about a place where they want to go and, a, and an experience we want to have as a family. And so, um, it, yes, in the, in the Olympic years, the races kind of pick themselves for sure. Uh, but in the years in between, you know, I get to have a lot of fun uh, choosing the races and experiences that, that I want to have. And, and uh, I think that's, that's part of what makes it fun. Now, you've had you know, a long career to this point. Are there certain races that you reflect on from a goal race perspective that you really relished the build-up to and you really had no, not only a physical attachment but an emotional attachment to, hey, I can't wait to do this race with the obvious exception of you know, the Olympic trials or the Olympics and things like that? Yeah, uh, 100%. And, and there are so many of those. I mean, every, every race I have a goal for. And sometimes choosing the goal is easy. And sometimes, like in the case of the Olympic trials, the goal kind of chooses itself of finishing in the top three and, and making the team in Tokyo. Um, but yeah, every, every race has, has goals oriented with it. And it's been, a, it's been a goal for a long time to finish on the podium in a major marathon, a New York or a Boston or, you know, a, a Chicago or a race like that. And, uh, and I still haven't done that yet, but that, ha that was a focus through 2019 running Boston and then coming back and running New York last fall were chances to be in a race where if all the stars aligned, I could finish on the podium. And I'm happy with both those races, um, despite the result, not achieving that goal, but I think that the goal served its purpose. The, the goal of being top three at a major is what got me out of bed in the morning and got me excited to keep going. And, and it's almost, um, you know, the, the science or art, I guess it's probably more of an art of goal setting is frustrating sometimes. And I've gone through cycles of believing that I have this system figured out and then thinking that goal setting is just some sort of hypothetical false stretch motivator where the goals we set are often too too far out there to, to be realistic or achievable if they're the ones that are exciting. So all the goal is is a carrot on a string that we never actually get. And, and it, it can be frustrating. And, um, and I think it was working with a sports psychologist at BYU that began to help change my approach to goal setting um, that I've continued to develop where now goals are the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. And then after the race, whether I achieved the goal or not, I need to grade myself based on the controllables that I had in the race. If I set a goal to win a race 
and somebody else shows up and runs out of their minds and runs the best race of their life and beats me, and I still run my best race, then it doesn't make sense that I should be frustrated at myself for having just run my best race, right? It might not make sense, but does it stop you from being no, frustrated? It, well, you, you have to be tactful, right? And so, so if I say, oh, my goal was to win the race and I was second, and that's all I focus on, then yes. But if I say my goal was to win the race and I ran tough today, I finished strong, I hit my paces, we did everything right, then I think there's something to be taken away that's positive. And that approach helps grow confidence race by race, even in the races that aren't perfect. So for example, I set a goal to run well and I run poorly, right? We have a tendency to say, well, better luck next time. And we chuck that race into the laundry list of poor races that we've had and focus back on the few good races and hope that our next race is a good race, right? But in the approach of what did I do well, even after a bad race, I can go through and find something I did well. Maybe it's like I warmed up well or I hydrated the night before well or you know, maybe I'm really grasping at something, but I can find things that I did well and by emphasizing to myself the things that I did well allows me to, when I get on the next starting line, take some confidence from that. Instead of, th instead of thinking on the start line, well, last time sucked, I hope it's better this time. I can think, well, last time I finished strong, this time, I just have to be a little stronger in the middle of the race. And it, and it kind of works to positively grow confidence. So what is your goal settings um, process like now that you've worked with this individual at BYU? And you know, just in terms of what exactly is a goal? How far out do you make them? Do you have tiers? Like, okay, these are short-term goals, medium-range goals, long-term range goals. Just what does that process look like for you? Yes. Uh, yes to all of those, I think. Um, Essentially, uh, I have a goal for anything that I'm looking at that's on my calendar, right? So I want to make the Olympic team. So I'm not yet setting goals of where I want to finish in the Olympics because I'm not going yet, right? So my goal is focused on making the team. And so since that's where my next big step is, I'm thinking about that goal. But I'm running the Houston Half Marathon tomorrow. So that's another goal that's on my schedule that I can plan for and, and begin to, to work towards and, and focus on, certainly as it's 20 hours away. And so, so uh, yes, to all of those. And I think my gauge now of setting a goal is when I say, when I look at myself in the mirror and I say, hey, my goal is to, well, and I'll give an example. So, um, when I was training for, after I'd qualified for Rio in 2016, and I was going to the Olympics, it was time to set the goal for where I was going to finish in the Olympics or where I was going to shoot for. And the goal that I felt pressure to set was to finish on the podium because that's what everyone else wants you to say, right? That's what, that's what family wants you to say and friends, and that's what every media interview, like they want to talk about how you're going to go bring home a medal. But every time I thought about finishing on the podium in Rio, my anxiety would go up. I'd start thinking of all the names that means I have to beat. And I'm a stats guy. I know that not everybody's going to show up on the same day and not everybody's going to run well. But to say that I finished third at the U.S. trial and we're going to throw in a lot of other good runners and I'm still going to be in the top three, that didn't seem realistic. And I think, I think our own anxiety or whatever you want to call it, 
is a pretty good gauge of what's realistic and what's not. And so when I set a goal, I'm looking for something that is exciting enough to get me out of bed, but not so lofty that it makes me nervous to think about it. And so that's kind of my gauge. I want to strike that, you know. And setting the goal for the Olympics was tough because I didn't feel like setting the goal to be on the podium was the right goal. And then I was like, well, then what goal do you set? Like, you know, finish the race? I, you know, I thought this is like, and so there was, I was really, really struggling to find a goal that made me excited to be my best at the Olympics when the goal wasn't to finish on the podium. And it was one day at practice when coach said, Jared, I think you can be top 10 at the Olympics, that that kind of resonated with me. And I thought, oh yeah, that's my goal. That's the right goal. Because it feels good. It's motivating. And nobody else cares about fourth place through 10th place at the Olympics, but now I did. And so that became the right goal for me. That's a great point when you talk about the anxiety inducing element, because you're trying to bring into the, into the equation the intuition of it, but that's also kind of like a bell curve, right? Because you can get that high anxiety point, and then it goes to the other side, whereas if like, if I were to say, hey, I'm gonna qualify for the Olympics in the marathon, I wouldn't have any anxiety related to that goal because it's so far out from being possible that you know, it wouldn't, wouldn't matter at all. I'd be totally fine with it. So I can see where, you, where it comes to a point where intuition gets you to that point, right crossing the line to the other side and going from there. So with all that being said, you're here today, like you said, in 20 hours, you're gonna be running here. So in what capacity have you know, build up races to think of no better term for it, what role do they play in achieving, say, like the goal that you have now or goals that you've had in the past? So you're coming tomorrow to race. You're going to be running against a great field, but it's not the top goal that you have this season. So what is that interplay like, not only in terms of mental and physical prep, but what you do on race day you know, when you get into the heat of the moment? Well, the, the goals for races like this are, are frankly a little bit more abstract and probably less measurable. It's just not a perfect goal, but it's about feeling good. And it's about finding a fast rhythm out there that I think that I can maintain and trying to really feel good in it. And I, you know, and I think about, you know, I guess I think about times and I think about times in which if I walk away from this race and I run... Uh, under 62 minutes, I'm going to be thinking, hey, I'm, I'm in a good spot. And if I run under 61 minutes, I'm going to be thinking, dang, I'm really, really... And if I run 64 minutes, I'm going to be thinking, well, okay, I guess I got to go home and do some work. But the time doesn't, you know, I, I, the time's going to tell me something and it's going to make me feel a certain way about my training and my preparation and, and a gauge of where I'm at. But the reality is that what this race is, is it's information for me to go back and talk with Coach Eyestone about where we're at, about how running felt, and about what we need to do over the rest of this training cycle. So it's six weeks from today is the Olympic trials. And if I run this race and it doesn't go as well as I hope it goes or expect it to go, then I go home and say, Coach, I'm just not as fit as we thought I was. It's time to really tighten up the screws. And I, I know I can put my head down and train hard, but risk of injury goes up the, the harder I, the more I throw caution to the wind and just put my head down and work. And so, but if I'm not fit, then that's the gamble that we have to take. 
Now, if I come out of this race and I think, yeah, everything's clicking where it's supposed to be, I feel as good as I thought I was going to, I'm right where I need to be, then I go home and say, yeah, we just keep doing what we're doing, we ensure I'm healthy and get to that starting line at the trials. And so it, it all gives us information to go on you know, as I, as I go back and really prepare for the race that, that is my main goal this season. And that's a great way of looking at it from an internal perspective. Is there, do you ever think about the possible external effects of what your race, you know, what your race performance can mean, whether that's a demonstration effect if you put out this unbelievable race and it's possible effect on your competitors on February 29th, or if your mind is in the gutter, kind of the, the opposite effect of what a race that doesn't quite go the way you planned can have uh, maybe a, a dissimilar effect. Sure, sure. And I, I do think about that. And that's the risk of running a tune-up race, right? I could have stayed home and done a 13-mile tempo in my own backyard and got the information from it by myself and not shared it with anybody, right? But, but I think that there's merit in training for the reality that most of the, all the time when I'm racing and you know, when, when I'm at the Olympic trials, it's going to be on a stage and everybody's going to see it. You know, I was at, um, you know, my, my son is seven and thinks he wants to be a basketball player. And, uh, and when we went to sign him up, he convinced the, uh, the lady in charge of Mapleton City Parks and Recreation that his dad knew a lot about basketball and really should be his coach. And uh, in, a, in a moment of weakness, I agreed. And so I'm a basketball coach, okay? And we were there practicing in our first practice two days ago before I left to come out here. And um, we're going to scrimmage after the practice with the other team that's practicing on the other side of the court. And we're shooting and we're doing some drills. And then I thought, you know, we need to do a drill that gives these guys a little bit of competitive pressure. So we started playing around the world, right? Where you have to hit the shot and then if you hit it, you get a move on, right? Where one person's shooting at a time, everyone's watching them, and it's a very different pressure than when all six of them were running around mad, throwing their ball in the air, trying to hit the hoop. And I thought, this is good for them because this simulates an element of the pressure that they're going to have when they're holding the ball and it's the middle of the game and all the parents are cheering for them, right? Everybody's watching them. And so to me, this is also an opportunity to continue to train myself to harness that pressure or that opportunity in a positive way. And if I just run away from the opportunity to be on a stage every time that I don't have to be, then when I have to be on a stage, it's probably going to bring more anxiety. So, so this gives me an element. There's an element of the tune-up race, I guess, to um, remembering what it feels like to be nervous on the starting line and figuring out how to deal with it. I love that comparison as a basketball guy, and I didn't realize that we were dealing with a, with a, with a basketball coach. I would have taken this, pod, taken this podcast in a completely different direction. Uh, with that said, not only are you a youth basketball coach, you also coach amateur runners as well. I know you've launched that service recently. And with that in mind, when you're talking to athletes that you're working with from a coaching perspective and they're preparing for a marathon or a half marathon, I guess let's talk about the marathon first and then you can juxtapose it with some shorter races. How much do you put emphasis on practicing uh, marathon pace during the buildup um, for a marathon, considering that it's a race unlike so many others that many people do. It's usually double the time on feet that a lot of people experience. Basically, what I'm saying is how much 
emphasis do you put on that marathon, those marathon paced efforts in the buildup versus the shorter either threshold or repetition paced efforts? Yeah, the mar marathon's tough, right? Because in order to push your body to the limits that you push yourself in a marathon to prepare yourself for the marathon, you put yourself in a position that takes so long to recover from it that it kind of can become counterproductive. So in a marathon, we're trying to walk the line of preparing ourselves for a race that is going to be hard and is going to put our body past its limits, if you will, and it's going to take a long time to recover from. And so you're walking a line, and I, I tell my, my athletes that have run a marathon before that if you ever get to the point in training where you feel like you're in the last, you're after mile 20 in the marathon, it's time to be done. You know, we're, we're too far into the marathon to continue to push that in training. But I do think it's important to be able to experience what some of those miles feel like towards the end. And so the way that I do it typically is if, if someone's training has gone well and they're towards the middle or the end of their training block, um, I encourage them in their long runs to throw in a few marathon pace miles. So two-thirds the way through the long run, two, three, four, five miles at marathon pace gives your body the opportunity to feel those miles on tired legs at probably the end of a, a hard training week without actually having to have run 15 miles to get to those tired legs and you know or doing some alternating miles I'll say run one mile hard and then slow down 40 or 50 or 60 seconds for a mile and then go back to one mile at marathon pace and then slow down and run a few oscillating miles like that throwing that that uh, kind of fartlek style work into a long run similarly just gives you the chance to stress your legs with uh, with a little bit of extra um, marathon training. But I would tell any of my athletes 20 hours from their race to just look at all the good things that happen from your training. You know, I, I get a lot of confidence from going back to my training journal, opening it up and saying, okay, I had this good session and I had this good session and I had, I had these, you know, and, and I ignore the bad stuff. I just totally ignore it and say, okay, I had this patch of training that was good. And, um, and, and try to take confidence from the positive stuff because, because most of the time there's there's some sort of reason for every reason that there is that your race shouldn't go good tomorrow. There's probably multiple reasons that it should. And so, you know, at this point, looking at the things that you've done well, I think is, is far more productive. And when you're talking about a goal race, part of that that ties into it is just the emotion around it, right? When it's, just, when it's just a neighborhood run or some race that you picked up spontaneously, there's usually not a lot of emotion attached to it. But, you know, say here we have the Houston Marathon coming up. Someone views this as a goal race for them. They've been training for it for six months, 12 months. And with that emotion attached to it, there's this idea of trying to make it the best day possible so when you talk to people and or when you talk to yourself before a race like that, how do you make sure that you capture that emotion and use it for positive and not say go out too hard or let your emotions kind of get ahead of you early on in a race in a way that could then sabotage you later? Good, good. Well, so there is an opportunity when there's 
the race you've been training for. And, um, and a, you know, a, a guy that I um, interact with quite a bit at BYU, his name's Doug Padilla. He was an Olympic 5K runner in the 90s. He'll always say, Jared, if you're not a little nervous, you probably don't care. And so, so nerves, and a lot of times mean, hey, I care about this. And so that's a, that's a good thing to have a little bit of nerves. But we want to we wanna harness it, right? And Coach Eyestone is always is famous on the BYU team for always trying to bring it down. Even on the start line of a race, he's not amping anybody up. He's saying, guys, you know, his, his last words to me before almost any race are, just another day at the office, have fun, you know? And like, and that's his, you know, bring it back down to, hey, this is just what we do. It's just another run. We've done hundreds of runs getting ready for this. Time to go have fun, you know? And that's his, his way of doing that. Now, it, on, a, on a very, a, a more micro level, the, the thing that's helped me um, is a cue, again, from Craig Manning, the sports psychologist at BYU. And he would, he would tell me, Jared, fear and anxiety live in the future and regret and remorse live in the past. None of those emotions exist in the present and there's power in the presence. So, so in the present. So that became a cue to me that if I start feeling fear and anxiety, that means my mind's not in the present and I got to figure out how to get it back. So tomorrow morning, if I'm on the bus headed to the start line and my heart starts to pump with a little anxiety for the race that's coming up, what I'm going to think is, oh, my mind's in the future. How do I get it back to right now? I need to take a sip of my drink. I need to make sure my spikes are in my bag. I need to, like, what, what am I doing right now? I need to relax. I need to sit back in my chair and relax or close my eyes or turn on some music or whatever it is, right? What am I doing right now? Same thing for when I start thinking, oh, man, I sure wish I didn't have to miss that week of training three weeks ago when my kid was throwing up in the night or, what, you know, whatever it was, right? I think, oh, my mind's not in the present. What can I do in the present? You know, I need to consider the good races that I had and the good training that I had or whatever right now to help give me confidence. And so, so that becomes a cue to me when I'm fearing, feeling anxiety or when I'm feeling regret that I'm not in a productive state. And the same thing goes in the race. You know, I think if, if the marathon ended at mile 19, there would be no wall at mile 18. Okay, so I think that the wall in the marathon is an illustration of the same thing happening. It's us, it's our minds slipping to the future, all of a sudden for the first time in the race, because we're tired now, we've run 16, we've run 18 miles, we're now tired, our glycogen is running out, you know, there's a whole bunch of things going on, but then we go from, hey, we're running, we're feeling good, we're clicking off miles to 10 miles to go. I don't know if I can make it 10 miles. And that jump from where we are to 10 miles in the future, I think is a big aspect of what the wall is. And if we can, if we can plan for the future, okay, I need to take a gel, I need to hydrate, I need to manage my pace so I can make it 10 miles, but still focus on just making it to mile 17, mile 18, running the mile we're in is what Ryan Hall would say, run the mile you're in, but getting our mind back to what we're doing right now is going to help us get to the end much better than thinking about all the bad things that could happen in eight miles. And that's absolutely part of the allure of the marathon is overcoming that hurdle. Uh, it's why so many of us keep coming back, not only for the physical challenge of it, but the mental challenge as well. And for those of us who've raced other distances, 
it happens all the time. Whether if you're doing a 400 meter race, you're feeling it at like 250 meters if you've done that race, and you're like, why am I doing this? This is awful. No different than you run the mile or the 5K or the 10K, right? You have that point two thirds, three quarters through the race where all of a sudden it's that come to Jesus moment of like, am I going to keep doing this? Am I going to push it that last 1% or am I going to ease up a little bit? And that's something that's universal to all of us who run races. So how do you prepare yourself for those moments where you really have to come to grips, not only with your effort in the moment, but what you have to do mentally and emotionally to get your body past that point to achieve the goals that you set out for in the, in, you know, far ahead of that time and not relent to the pressures of the moment? Well, it, sometimes it is a real trick to get your mind back into the present. It's easy to just say, hey, we got to, you know, don't think about what's up in the future. Think about what we're doing right now is an easy thing to say. But when you're in the race and your legs are hammered and there's still eight miles to go, it's, it's sometimes pretty tough to ignore the reality that there's eight more miles and, and we want to plan for it. So I, um, I use this idea of what uh, Craig Manning calls a power statement, but uh, you know, a, a synonym for it would be a mantra or something that's going to remind you why it's worth it. Okay. It's pretty easy when you're writing a goal down four months ahead of time to be excited for why you're doing it. But in the moment, sometimes it's a lot tougher. And I, you know, I, I don't know that I could even, I don't know that I could count the number of times where in the middle of a race, I would think, oh man, if I could snap my fingers and just be out of this race and be home on my couch, I would do it. It's would, so nice to hear you right say now. that because I know I have thought that countless times. Right. Well, and it's, you know, and there's something, there's some weird hard wiring in all of us that says, no, we can't stop. We have to, we have to at least finish this race and then I'm never signing up for another one, right? We, we have to finish the race, but, um, but if we could snap our fingers and have it had never existed, man, that would be so tempting sometimes. And so what you need is a power statement that's powerful enough to remind you why you're doing it and that it is worth it. And that motivation sometimes is just enough to give you the strength to bring your mind back to the present and focus on the mile you're in. And I guess I, I use the example of uh, the Boston Marathon last year. Uh, so 2019 Boston, uh, I had set the goal to break 210. I never run sub 210 in a marathon. I'd thought I was capable of it for a few years and I really wanted to break 210, and the weather lined up in, in uh, Boston fairly well. It was a little warm, uh, a little wet in the morning, but, but it was good enough weather to run 210 on the training that I'd had, so I wanted it. And I went out at that pace. And my mantra for Boston was, because I can. And because I can meant that I'm capable of this, and I've been given a gift to run, and so... To not do my best is kind of, I don't know, shaming the gift. And because, because I like to do what I like to do, and I can run, and so I'm going to do it. And so because I can, just kind of embodied, it was this mantra that channeled a lot of emotional positive energy for me. So when I got to mile 13, 12, 11 maybe, mile 11, and the pace slowed, and I thought, oh, no, no, 
you know, I'm not going to run this pace for too long because that's going to close the door on my, we had been running t- sub 210 pace and then it slowed like 15 seconds a mile. And I was like, it's only going to take three or four miles at this pace before we close the door on my opportunity to run sub 210. So I got up to the front and started pushing the pace and then no one went with me. And I thought, okay, thanks guys. You know, I thought I'm going to run 210. And if you guys want to let me win the race, I'm happy to win the race, but I'm not, you know, I'm not supposed to be leading Boston, right? I was bib 24 in the race by PRs. Um, and I thought I could finish a little higher than that. And I was in, I was in good shape and I was in PR form, but I'm not supposed to be leading the Boston marathon, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this because I can. I can run this pace. It's my pace. I'm running 210. I'm running sub 210. I'm going to run it because I can. And so I led the race for three miles until they caught up to me. And then we got into the Heartbreak Hill section and my legs started to catch up with me. And I thought, well, I don't know what's going to happen for the rest of the race, but I'm going to keep up with these guys through this hill because I can. And I did. And then we got to Heartbreak Hill and the pack separated from me. And I started to think, well, this was a great run. I ran 209 pace for 20 miles. I guess this is the beginning of the end. And they're breaking away. And they ended up pulling away probably 20 seconds in one mile on me. And I started, you know, I, I'm, I was spiraling down. All right. It was a good run. I ran with the leaders for 20 miles. I've never done that in a major marathon before. And I was, I was, I was still being positive to a certain extent. And then I thought, no, I'm going to run this hill because I can. And so I ran up Heartbreak Hill because I could. And I got to the top of Heartbreak Hill. Anybody run Boston? As soon as you get to the top of Heartbreak Hill, it is all downhill. And that is the blessing of Boston. And so I got to the top of the hill and thought, well, I don't know what's going to happen the rest of this race, but I'm going to see if I can go one more mile at 209 pace. I'm going to get back to pace. I'm running by myself at this point, but I'm going to do it because I can. And so I, re- I started on that downhill mile and I clicked my watch at, I think, mile 22, the next mile markers after this downhill started, and it was 4.55. And I thought, oh, I'm back on pace. I'm going to do it for one more mile because I can, because I think I can <laughs> at this point. And that mantra, because I can, ended up working for me over and over again. Now, I don't always pick mantras that good. Sometimes I, I, I deliberate over a mantra for a race and I get out there and the race starts hurting and I say my mantra to myself and I think, that is the dumbest thing. <laughs> and, and I have to kind of scramble for building a new mantra that's going to work for that race, right? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But that, that mantra in Boston really worked well for me to remind me why I wanted to do it that it was worth it. It was a cue that kept me in the present, and it was kind of all of that wrapped into one thing. Now, you've accomplished so much in running. You've run so many high-level races. Do those moments of introspection where you're hurting and everything's in pain and your mental side is crumbling, does it feel any different now than it did earlier in, the, in your career? Yeah. Yeah, it feels, it feels different, but I think, I think it feels different because... Um, experience has taught me that I'm not going to die, right? I just, if I embrace this and push through it, that I think, I, I think experience has taught me a couple of things. One is that maybe it's not as bad as it feels at the time. And two, that it's going to be worth it, right? The, the races that I look back on as where, where I beat myself, I beat my mind and I did something that I thought I couldn't do. 
those, re- those races mean so much to me. Not just, not just in terms of, uh, of awards and accolades, but in terms of how it shaped me as a person. They became me. Um, making it through the last three or four miles of the Olympic trials in 2016 when I was dehydrated. I finished the race 15 pounds lighter than I'd started it because I was so dehydrated. Um, Finishing that race and crossing the line was exciting because I'd made the Olympic team and it was a goal achieved. But when I think back on that, what I think of is what, it, what I became as a person and what I learned through that experience. And I learned some things that really motivated me deep down. And, um, and so I think my, my perception on pushing through those tough spots are that it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. I'm going to, I'm going to, in, in an hour or in two hours or in three hours, I'm going to be sitting in my hotel room thinking back on this race. And if I push right now, it's going to be worth it. And, and that works for me. All right. Last question before we get going. Again, with tomorrow in mind for so many of us who are going to be running, you know, there are potential factors, maybe not for this race, but maybe the next race that you have where there's external factors that can influence a goal, right? Whether it's weather or you wake up in the middle of the night and your stomach's giving you trouble or all of a sudden there's logistical issues and things like that on race day, which can influence a goal that we had in mind for a goal race. How do you deal with or how do you talk to people who are dealing with those kinds of things on race day, especially if for them the race, the, the, the goal is time-related, not place-related, right? So L.A. is an example for the 2016 Olympic trials. The goal was top three. Who cares what the time is, right? So that was a hot day. You lost 15 pounds, but it was hot for everybody. But if you have this goal in mind that's time-related, where all of a sudden external factors can really mess with, what is your advice for people who are in that situation and trying to make the most out of that day? Well, I'd say, I'd say pay attention to that indication of, I mean, we're, we're going to be feeling anxiety at this being this close to the race, regardless of probably what our goal is. But we still, I think, still using that as a gauge to a certain extent of, do I have the right goal given the race day conditions or does it need a little bit modified? And if it needs modified to give us that feeling of confidence, but we can still modify it to something that's exciting in some way. So now the, the goal no longer needs to get us out of bed in the morning. We're going to get out of bed tomorrow morning. In fact, we, we probably won't really get into bed tonight, right? But the goal should still excite us, okay? So when, when, when looking at if we need to modify our goal, we need to say, okay, we're within 24 hours of the race. There's going to be some anxiety, but how much anxiety is this goal giving me at this point when I look at the race day conditions? And, and I think still working to try to find the right goal that's exciting but not nerve-wracking um, is the gauge and and nobody else is going to be as good at finding that goal as you are for yourself so take some confidence in that you know your body and your goal and your desires and your fitness better than anybody else and um you know and sometimes sometimes i still take kind of an out-of-body experience to to tell myself that right it's it's so easy in training, for example, to tell a training partner, hey, your leg hurts, 
you should just take today off and make sure you get it better, right? And why is it so hard to tell ourselves that, right? And so sometimes when I'm telling myself something as a gauge of my own goals that needs to come from me because I know myself the best, I almost have to do it as an out-of-body experience. If I was Coach Eyestone, but knew me as well as I know me because I'm coming from inside of me, could I tell myself, would, would I be telling, would, my co would Coach Eyestone be telling me, hey, we need to adjust the goal, right? If I had myself as a close friend to myself, right? This is like third world, This is getting world, so right? meta. Four dimensional. So meta, Jared. <laughs> okay. What would I tell myself to do? And, um, and maybe, maybe that'll help us navigate to the right goal. All right. So Jared has 15 minutes to take pictures with everybody who's here today. But before we get to that, let's give him a round of applause and cheer him on tomorrow. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And good luck to you as well. Thank you, guys. Jared, thank you for doing this. These live shows are always so much fun and exciting. Thank you, everyone who came out to witness this in person. Boy, was I nervous, not only for this one, but also the day before I had a podcast with Molly Huddle and Alexi Pappas. That's going to run next week on the Rambling Runner podcast network, uh, not podcast network, sorry, the Rambling Runner podcast feed. That will be next Monday. I can't wait for that to come out as well. Uh, Molly and I and Alexi talked about just the current state of women's running. So because it's such a broad-based topic, it's not going to be on this feed. It will be on the Rambling Runner, but make sure you check that out. Subscribe now and you will hear it over the next two months this feed is going to start to go to twice a week so with that in mind be ready to check a lot of stuff out not only are we going to be doing prep uh, episodes with the runners we've been following for a while but we'll have a couple special guests as well and then in march we'll recap the whole process with all the runners we've had on this has been so much fun and i can't wait to really dig into it and spoiler alert if you're listening now then, hey, you're a true fan, and I can't wait to tell you, I'm thinking about extending the podcast all the way into the summer because, frankly, the road to the Olympic trials goes past February, right? We have plenty of track athletes who will be preparing for the summer months, and there's been a call to have more of these episodes, and, frankly, I love recording them. So that is certainly a possibility. I'm leaning towards yes, but if you have any suggestions or – if you want to, uh, you know, influence decision, feel free to reach out. Uh, you can either reach me online at social, on the social medias at rambling underscore runner. That's Twitter and Instagram. Also, you can email me anytime at rambling runner podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. Happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti, from InPost Media. Also, thank you to MetaP for the music and his song, Evolution. Never